Welcome to this BJSM podcast. Groin problems are a very big issue in sports medicine, as listeners know. And there's been a lot of action over the last few years, but the question is, have we made progress? And to address this question today, I'm with Dr. Andy Franklin Miller. He's a highly credentialed sports physician, as many of you know. He's at the Sports Surgery Centre in Dublin. He's very prominent on Twitter under at a franklin miller and is an active blog so one of the leaders in sports medicine internationally andy thanks for joining this podcast today Grim, thank you and i'm delighted to be with you and we had a terrific chat a couple of weeks ago on running biomechanics and lower limb injuries and that's been very popular on the soundcloud site but today andy i want you to give the listener a sense of the progress that's been made in groin pain if we start with a clinical scenario of a football player who comes into the clinic with some gradual onset of groin pain and no obvious acute injury. You touched on this in a paper in 2009. What's new in 2014? Karen, well, look, absolutely. As you say, Ada Falvey and I wrote a paper back in 2009 on a anatomical approach to, to athletic groin pain. And really, at the time, uh, we were confused by the multitude of, of names and, and descriptions around what would appear to be very much the same presentation. That the terms uh, Gilmore's groin, athletic pubalgia, sportsman's hernia, pubic bone overload are all things that are thrown around the literature. And really, it continues to be a significant cause of morbidity. And we know it's about the second or third uh, most common condition in Aussie rules and in Gaelic football, soccer, really with its time out being six months plus. And, and there are multitudes of surgical potential interventions to try to alleviate some of the symptoms. And also Perholmick wrote a fantastic paper in The Lancet looking at a randomized controlled trial of rehabilitation. But I guess things have moved on a little bit since then. And, um, and trying to differentiate between those multiple diagnoses, we've been doing an awful lot of work with 3D biomechanics, uh, looking at how our patients presenting with athletic groin pain run, jump, land, cut, and move. And really, I think... The, the difficulty of trying to differentiate these out into multiple components is really they're describing one and the same thing. And that same thing is typically pain in the groin. It's difficulty in running, accelerating, jumping, turning. And really initially it presents insidiously. And so gradually over time, the patient will present with more pain after training, pain sitting up in bed, pain putting on their socks in the morning, until that limits their ability to kick, turn and cut, and then they present. And so I think the, the, the presentation hasn't changed um, and the multitude of potential surgical interventions haven't changed. But I think certainly with, with Aina and myself, our understanding of, of what this is and how it relates to, to the pathology really has been advanced by the 3D biomechanics. And I think we really should start to consider calling it a pelvic biomechanical overload syndrome rather than the multitude of previous diagnoses. So really... That sounds like you don't believe in the idea of diagnostic entities such as an adducted tendinopathy or a rectus femoris strain or a hip pathology. What do you say? Uh, no, actually, when we started out looking at the 3D biomechanics, we used PERS entities model almost as the basis for how we might start to look at things. But then as we progressed, and we've seen about 800 patients with athletic groin pain since August of last year, as we saw more and more data from the 3D biomechanics, it actually became more and more clear. It's difficult to differentiate solely into those entities. 
What I would agree with significantly, though, there is a contribution of the hip. And if we go back to some mathematical modeling papers, some of the early work done before surgeons started to look at hip replacements, there was a lot of matrix modeling, particularly by Dostra and Andrews and Dolstra, who looked at how load is transferred across the pelvic bone. And using a mathematical technique called finite element analysis, we're able to look at how when we load, we jump and land, where the forces go. And we can see that in normal movement, the forces are taken through that anterior acetabular rim. And so it doesn't take a huge leap to work out that actually if the pelvis tips forward anteriorly or there's significant internal rotation of the hip on landing, that those forces can abnormally transmit through the superior pubic ramus and cause some of the pubic bone overload. I think the important thing here is that actually this isn't something that suddenly springs up. It's a progressive condition which takes time. There may well be a fatigue failure at some point which presents as an acute pain, but actually the development of that pubic bone edema must demonstrate an abnormal force transmission through the pelvis, which suggests that there is an underlying movement deficiency. So I, I, I think the entities are a great way of looking at it, but I think we're moving on from that and understanding the 3D motion and understanding what happens in both one leg and the relation to the pelvis. And I think an awful lot of this is proximal pelvic control, what happens to the glute in relation to the femur and the acetabula, but also into the lower abdominals. We know that Mayers wrote a paper in 2011 looking at that anterior aponeurosis as the rectus abdominis wraps underneath the pubic bone and across into the adductor. And we know there's some crossover, very much like Vleeming's work in the lumbar spine, that at the anterior plate, the anterior epineurosis, some of the right-sided rectus abdominis fibers cross over to the left adductor. And if you can imagine the pelvis tipping forward here, that's putting a, a, an abnormal stress on those. That, in combination with a hip movement, starts to really get a feel for how this biomechanical overload can really occur. And so when the patient comes into the clinic, what do you do with the 3D assessment? Absolutely. Well, before we get there, we all of our patients have a... Uh, clinical examination and we, we Aina, Fabio and myself both carry out the same clinical exam and, um, and we're looking really for to differentiate between the anterior plate injury which we find certainly reproduces many of the symptoms on palpation of the pubic tubercle still based on our original paper in terms of the pubic clock at the sort of 12 o'clock position from the pubic tubercle if you ask the patient to perform a resisted sit-up there's pain in that rec abdominis aponeurosis really trying to differentiate that from signs of hip impingement. And I know there's been some debate recently about the diagnostic accuracy of the FADIA, the flexion, adduction, internal rotation, or the Thomas test, but certainly they're things we're looking for. And in moving on from that, we would always look at a, an MRI image, particularly in the sagittal view, taking a look at that anterior aponeurosis, looking at that rec abdominis attachment. But moving into the 3D lab, again, for, for our listeners who aren't really familiar with it, what that does is allow us to put onto bony landmarks, reflective markers. We have a, a grass sports turf floored laboratory here permanently, two force plates embedded within it. And so the markers allow us to predetermine where joints are in space. And we have a series of tests, a progressive set of tests of neuromuscular load. We start off with a single leg squat as a reference point. Uh, and then a 30-centimeter box step down, really looking at landing competence, both the pelvis control, the knee varus valgus, femoral rotation, and torso position. And to try to step up the load again, we use a 15-centimeter hurdle and ask the patient to perform a side hurdle hop, jumping over landing onto a force plate and springing immediately back. And we developed that test really to try to deliver a cutting-type type test 
but with sufficient rigor in a laboratory that we can reproduce it in prospects of trials. And then we go on to look at two different cuts, a pre-planned, a decision cut based around a five meter run and a 45 degree shift. And then an indecision cut where we ask the, the patient to run directly towards the defender. And then a series of light gates triggers either a braking, a running or a cutting maneuver, really to add that level of indecision. And from that progressive set of challenges, we've been able to identify some very common themes. What are those themes? Well, look, in the last 800 patients or so, a good proportion of our patients, about 60% or so, relate to this anterior plate dysfunction or the anterior aponeurosis symptoms. And those patients we've noticed specifically have a significant anterior pelvic tilt in all of their movements, but also an inability to control for pelvic obliquity in the, in the shift. So we find that the contralateral side would drop the pelvis from the stance leg in turning and cutting. And also that we'd see an awful lot of foot inward rotation or internal rotation of the foot and the leg about the way they turn. But interestingly, the, one of the, the most uh, common features is a lack of torso control. The patient will turn on the plate in order to make an aggressive change of direction movement, but their torso will lag behind. And you can see how that creates an anterior sling load transfer across the front of the body. And these things are difficult to, to imagine when we're talking about it. And I think I may link, if I link some clips up to either the, the website or, or uh, to the podcast, they're much easier to visualize if you see them. But the exciting thing about these tests is we're, we're doing this as part of a prospective research study. And um, the Sports Surgery Clinic have, have funded two postdoctoral researchers and three PhD students to really look at this. But, but we're using them clinically, Karen in order to guide the rehabilitation based on those deficiencies. So would you say it is in a couple of these biomechanical patterns that look to you as if they predispose the athlete to injury or just one or how many would you commonly see? Look, it's, it's early days and I think we've, we've identified somewhere between six and eight common abnormalities across these, these conditions. Part of the problem here, of course, is trying to delineate which are our response to pain and which are a response to an injury versus those that are predisposing. And we've been lucky enough to take a number of elite cohorts uh, without groin pain and follow up one or two of those who've gone on to develop some aponeurotic or some hip-related pain, and we're, we're just looking at that data now. But I think in terms of our rehabilitation program, by, by starting to address these deficiencies, we've been able to bring forward the, the rate of that rehabilitation. And the last hundred or so patients, the average time in, in rehabilitation is about nine weeks. And, and we base that absolutely on this, this motion control. Okay. So then does a person need to have the 3D biomechanics and do you engage the athlete in showing those faults? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think at this stage, it, the data that we're producing requires the use of both the 3D kinematics and the force plate kinetics. Um, we, we involve the athlete in that entirely, and so our biomechanics team will feed back to the athlete immediately, and the clips themselves are uploaded to our Dartfish TV account. We spoke about that with, with running, but we use it in all of our rehabilitation. So, so our team of physiotherapists who deliver the rehabilitation process will use um, not only the clips delivered by Vicon, um, but also two-dimensional clips from Dartfish TV to really reinforce the changes that we're trying to make. And through that rehabilitation process, we're able to put the, the player back into the laboratory in their sort of on the grass turf natural environment in order to, to demonstrate those improvements. And actually, I think 
part of the problem with athletic groin pain or pelvic biomechanical overload is the fact that there's not a definable injury. If you injure your anterior cruciate ligament and, and everyone knows the timeline for rehabilitation, it's an obvious injury, you're going to have surgery and then, and then move forwards. Groin pain is very difficult. There's nothing obvious. The psychological challenges here are, are, are great. And certainly we found some of that within the Hagos score. So we're using uh, the Hagos score to track as a, as a patient-reported outcome measure the improvement in our, in our patients. But indeed, the quality of life score, part of that, we often find is, is almost permanently impaired because of that difficulty in coming to terms with, but also the knowing when that endpoint is going to be. But with the numbers we're seeing here, we're able to give the patient an almost real-time feedback of where they are in the program, how severe they are based on their Hagos score, but also the average time of the group of people that are in rehabilitation. So at any one time, we've had about 60 or so patients in the program. Um, and then, so rather than fighting this sort of condition on their own, our patients here at Sports Surgery Clinic are able to to go through it almost together. And, and that's really just a feature of the numbers that we see, in part because of the sort of propagative mechanisms of soccer and Gaelic football, which are, are predominant here. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the Hagos? Uh, the Hagos is a uh, patient self-reported outcome questionnaire developed by uh, Per Holmick and uh, has very good validity. Indeed, it's, it's also been translated into a number of other languages. Um, it's divided up into a series of, of subscores um, but it's the overall score which is important. Um, and there's an online resource where this is available and actually the scoring system is available so that there's already a spreadsheet there in order so you can score your patients. And it's proving very useful in terms of demonstrating that although they may feel not a huge amount better, um, subjectively they, they correlate with the improvements in the biomechanical improvement. And how long does it take to administer the Hagos? Uh, well, we use an iPad-based version of it, which we've created. So it normally takes three or four minutes um, for the Hagos alone. It, uh, what we have found is actually if we administer it in the same order as with other questionnaires, uh, the reliability, I think, is, is decreased. So it's best to, if there are other questionnaires uh, that the patient's filling out at the same time, it's often best to shuffle the order a little bit so, uh, so they're fresh with it. So, Andy, we keen to keep these podcasts to 20 minutes for our listeners. What would you summarise the innovations as being and the sort of take-home messages for clinicians who are listening? Well, look, I, I think in, in my view, I think the underpinning mechanism of this is a biomechanical overload, which suggests that we need to look at how our athletes move, they run, they cut. And many of the features here are a lack of gluteal control, but also forward tilt of their body and lack of torso versus pelvis control. So I think many of the things that are, are being innovated in, in rehabilitation generally are things that apply to groin pain. And you know, I, many talks we would say, look, if you partially tear your ACL, you wouldn't cut it. And so I think the, the uh, need to perform detensioning surgery on an area where we're beginning to understand where the mechanisms of that overload come from really have no place in the, certainly the patients that we see. But we know in some, of course, that um, the, the hip involvement can require some form of further intervention. How an athlete know whether it's time to consider surgery or whether they've given conservative approaches such as yours appropriate trial? I look, we have this conversation with uh, a group of physiotherapists who came over from a, a European soccer team uh, only a couple of weeks ago. I, I think there's always going to be a demand, particularly in the elite professional environment, where 
the window you might gain, albeit short-term from a surgical intervention, be that a neurectomy or a, a short-term detentioning, um, will give you the opportunity to compete in a Champions League qualifier a couple of weeks away. Um, I think there's no question of that. What is uh, certainly no doubt in my mind is the fact that at some point, this underlying biomechanical change needs to occur. And so it's so common that we see patients who've had repeat surgeries on the right, then the left, and the right again. And really the recurrence rate is very high. And as such, I think, you know, it, it's something to discuss with the team and with the, the various people involved always. But, but my underlying uh, message would be that if you develop this pelvic biomechanical overload, this athletic groin pain, there's an underlying reason why it occurs, and it's not acute. So detensioning is only a, almost a palliative method rather than actually a rehabilitation. And just uh, in case folks aren't familiar with the detensioning in, in various languages, it's also called adducted tenotomy, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. Look, at, and it depends where you are in the world. And so and one option is an adductor tenotomy, uh, where the adductor longus is, is uh, resected. Uh, equally, there are surgeons out there who will also do that to the rectus abdominis, and so detention from two directions. Um, and then the, there's that sort of conjoint tendon, inguinal release, uh, where the uh, conjoint tendon itself or the inguinal ligament is, is detensioned. Um, not so much cut, but more lifted off the bone. And then, of course, that contrasts with uh, the posterior wall repairs. And really, I think a final point here is really if for a, a condition which prevents a high-level athlete from participating in sport, do we really think that actually a very barely imperceptible weakness in the aponeurosis of the oblique muscles is really responsible for the condition that limits that level of performance? I, I just can't see. I can't see the underlying mechanism for how that can be the case. We know there's a nerve, the ileo-inguinal nerve runs through that, particularly the genitofemoral branch uh, runs through the inguinal canal. And so that nerve irritation is certainly a feature. And I know we looked at um, a recent paper where um, radiofrequency denervation can affect that nerve. And sometimes I think, again, as a sort of stopgap measure, that could be an option, particularly for the very elite player trying to make a, an important club match in a couple of weeks' time. But the underpinning message here really is this is being developed by a lack of control of the pelvis, particularly in a high-speed running and change of direction. And that's really where our rehab program is focused. And Andy, in a last word from you, would you say you're really following a sports medicine and quality sports physio principle of trying to address the cause and that the painful site might be a victim rather than a culprit? I would agree entirely. And I think actually our understanding in the last two or three years of really the the underpinning building blocks of movement based around those, those fundamental skills of squatting, pushing, pulling, bracing, um, really are the, the crux of this problem. It applies very much to the work I've been doing with running re-education as much as it is with, with groin pain rehabilitation. And it's that multidisciplinary environment. And here we use our strength and conditioning coaches almost as much as our physiotherapists to deliver this uh, program to our athletes. And I guess you get the technology advance compared to people trying to do this 10 years ago. Sure. I mean, look, we're very lucky. We're going to be supported by the clinic in terms of developing a, a 3D biomechanics laboratory, but also the ability for technology to have iPads and Apple TV so we can give immediate feedback to the patient. And the Dartfish TV resource in terms of holding that for the patient uh, to access from their home, but also that their referring physiotherapy team um, can benefit from it. We've had a number of patients come across from Europe where 
we've been able to immediately liaise on the clips because they could look at the clips at the same time as we were looking at them here in Dublin. And so it's really about involving the wider team as well, rather than just being a diagnostic service. Thanks a lot, Andy. We'll leave it there. Really appreciate your time on the podcast today. You've been listening to Andy Franklin Miller. He's also the author of Clinical Sports Anatomy, which is highly regarded as the anatomy text which helps underpin the things he's been talking about. Please do follow BJSM via our Twitter account at BJSM underscore BMJ, where we'll direct you to blogs, new podcasts, cutting edge papers on our site. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast and you'll find many more from us and the whole BMJ group on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.